Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. I've been covering international politics for decades now, and there are just a few events that I've watched unfold in real time when it was immediately apparent that I was watching history in the making. The fall of the Berlin Wall was one. Those planes flying into New York's Twin Towers on 9-11 was another. And to that short list, I'd now add last week's events in Washington, the storming of the US Capitol. We'll be discussing the implications of those scenes in this week's podcast. I'm joined by Anne-Marie Slaughter, who served as head of policy planning at the State Department under Hillary Clinton. She's now head of New America, a think tank. So can American democracy recover from last week's shocking scenes? As any visitor to Washington and any television viewer knows, the Capitol building is the very symbol of American democracy. On January the 6th, Congress assembled for a debate that Senator Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, now aged 79, said was the most consequential of his political life. This will be the most important vote I've ever cast. President Trump claims the election was stolen. The assertions range from... But as Senator McConnell was speaking, Congress was coming under attack by a pro-Trump mob, stirred up by the president's unsupported allegations that the US presidential election had been stolen. America's political establishment is now confronting profound questions about the stability of the country's political system. Some believe this is the greatest crisis the United States has faced since the Civil War in the 1860s. But in the mid-19th century, America was not the world's leading power, nor had it assumed the role of leader of the free world. That idea was stated most eloquently by John F. Kennedy in his inaugural address, delivered from the steps of the Capitol in January 1961. Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. What a contrast between the confidence of 60 years ago and the chaos today. A political meltdown in the United States has global implications. What happens to the American world leadership that Kennedy promised if American democracy itself is in question? So when I got Anne-Marie Slaughter on the line from the US, I started by asking her the fundamental question, how much trouble is the United States now in? There are two views about that, and I think there's truth in both of them. 
the one is this is the predictable but ultimately terrible end to this horrible four years of lawlessness and lies, and that you had a group of people who are on the fringes in many ways, who are loners, who found something in Donald Trump and who mounted a hapless insurrection. That's one view. The other is this is the culmination of a steady weakening of American institutions, of the of the anchors or pillars of our democracy, and that although this particular incident, which was horrifying and, and people died, but had it been really a well-planned insurrection, it could have been far, far worse. It was still the very fact that it could happen, the fact that, that the Capitol Police were not prepared, the fact that the National Guard weren't there, that that's a cascading failure of different institutions. And that wasn't just the result of the Trump rally. That's been four years and really six from the beginning of the Trump campaign. And I'm sure you will find deeper veins even beforehand, but that that is not going away and we have a lot of work to do. Mm. And I mean, I think that one of the things that worried me thinking about it is that even after that, eight Republican senators, and I think most of the Republican members of the House, voted essentially for this fraudulent theory that the elections might have been stolen. And that suggests to me that even if Trump goes, the Republican Party, one of the two great parties, can't really be relied upon now to support American democracy. Well, I think the Republican Party that we have known, or that I have known over my lifetime, over, over 40, 50 years, is no longer. Uh, the party of Lincoln is certainly no longer. There is a kind of a turbulence that may be birthing a new party. You look back to the kind of the morphing of the Republican Party at the turn of the 20th century, where you effectively have progressive Republicans who want to reform patronage politics and an old school group that does not. And perhaps that's what we're seeing again. That's maybe the more optimistic interpretation. The greatest worry is that the combination of a completely separate information environment, barely overlapping, and a system where we now have two parties that have no overlap, that are almost entirely polarized. When you talk about Mitt Romney or Lisa Murkowski or Susan Collins, that's a tiny number of people who might periodically be persuaded to vote Democratic. When time was, you had a group of Democrats who leaned conservative and a group of Republicans who leaned liberal. Those are gone And then the really dire prospect is that American democracy is really not built for two parties that have no overlap. And at best, you get stasis. And at worst, you get implicit or explicit civil conflict. So you're Biden now, or you know a lot of the people coming in around Biden, they do face an unprecedented domestic crisis. And on top of that, a pandemic. But let's think about the politics now. How do you think Biden should go about this? I mean, some people are saying, time for healing, reach out to the Republicans. Another line of thought is, no, you know, this was an insurrection and the people need to be punished and kind of crushed. 
how do you think he should do it and how do you think he will do it? I do think he has to do both. I understand all the strategic reasons for not responding with impeachment or an effort to invoke Article 25 to not essentially require Trump to be held accountable for what he did. I understand the strategic reasons, but in the end, if you are a nation under law, and that is the backbone of a liberal democracy, I don't think you have any choice, but at least to impeach and then to think about whether to try. Elizabeth Warren said this, and Senator Warren said, I'm a law professor, and this is the law. I cannot not say an elected president encouraged his supporters to disrupt the certification of a legitimate election and let that go. So I I actually think that Biden has to stand up and say, I am a rule of law president. I support the law. I support the law on either side. You know, when it was decided that it was for Bush rather than Gore, plenty of Democrats thought that, in fact, the election in Florida had gone for Gore, but they may not have thought Bush was legitimate, but they sucked it up and followed the law. So I do think Biden has to do that. Whether you, if you impeach him, when and how you then go on to trial, I think that is maybe more open to let Biden at the very least get a hundred days under his belt, let us move forward. And I do think, I both think he should, and I think he will emphasize the things that do bring us together. Because people forget that Trump has been actively finding every wedge, every division for four years. So for our president to stand up and say, we have all lost loved ones. We are all Republican or Democrat under economic threat. That's a class issue, not a political issue. To find the ways in which we once again remember that we're part of the same country will help. And do you think that the Republicans may, or enough of them may have got a big enough shock that they will respond to that? I mean, there was some hint of that in the way that, say, McConnell was spoke in the Senate chamber, the leader of the Republicans. I think a lot of that's going to depend on internal assessments of how strong continuing support for Trump is. And here again, it's hard to know whether the group we saw storm the Capitol was a vanguard of a very aroused, tens of millions strong Republican Trumpist party that thought the election was illegitimate. Or, as I suggested with the analogy to Bush v. Gore, there may be tens of millions of Republicans who think really Trump should have won the election, but not so much that they're going to not recognize Biden as their president, not so much that they're not going to turn back to ordinary business. The calculation before the storming of the Capitol was clearly that Trump was still a power to be reckoned with, and you didn't want to cross him. I think the Georgia elections were a wake-up call for a lot of Republicans. Trump was perfectly willing to tell his supporters to stay home, even though it meant losing the Senate. And McConnell was furious. Then I think Republicans who want to stay in office have to look and think, which is the greater danger? Do you allow Trump to continue and you support him and have him turn on you in a second as a kingmaker? Or do you say many of those issues are important, but that era is over and we're reforging the party? And meanwhile, you've had Twitter ban Trump, Facebook too. 
And interestingly, Angela Merkel said she wasn't comfortable with that, who's been seen as something of a champion of liberal democratic values. What do you think? I think that is an incredibly difficult quandary, although above all, it shows you the just complete intersection or overlap of private and public power. Twitter and Facebook are private companies, and as private companies, they can kick anybody off. But of course, they're not just private companies. They are the public square. And as the public square, they should be bound by the First Amendment. And no, they can't. I mean, incitement to violence, even under the First Amendment, yes. But you couldn't probably ban him forever. You might be able to ban him for that day. It would be interesting to see, and we probably will see, what the Supreme Court would say. Clear and present danger is generally the standard. So I do think we have to have much clearer, not just understandings, but rules about the extent to which Twitter and Facebook, as they are now, are in fact serving as a public utility and thus have to be regulated as a public utility and to what extent they are still private. But that has been a huge debate over, you know, terrorism on their platform, white supremacist hate on their platform, domestic terrorism. And this is the absolute epitome of that tension. Now, of course, the the spectacle of what happened at the Capitol and then Trump being banned from Twitter has been greeted with kind of ill-concealed delight in Russia, in China, who say, you know, the Americans give us lectures on free speech and democracy. Look at them now. What do you think this does, actually, for America's ability to be a a beacon? I mean, Biden had made it clear that he wanted to rally the world's democracies, talked of having a summit of the world's democracies. I mean, presumably, that all looks much harder to do now. Right now, yes. The United States calling a summit of democracies. We'll leave that to Boris Johnson and the D10, I think, to start. There, again, China and Russia would shut off all national broadcasting because it's government controlled. That is not true in the United States. Trump is free to go on Fox or any other network he wants. There is no lack of places that he can make himself heard. And again, Twitter and Facebook are still private companies, even though they really do play a public role. And as I said, we have to sort that out. But I think you can certainly respond that this is not the Egyptian government shutting down the Internet or indeed Russia shutting down the Internet and controlling all broadcast media. We're a very rich information environment still. On the question, though, of how do we now lead what Biden still calls the free world when our own difficulties with democracy have been on full display. I mean, not just the storming of the Capitol, but the electoral system, the last two months of what Trump's been doing, and really the erosion of all those informal norms that uphold democracy. You know, the United States is still more democratic than any number of countries in the world, but the only way we can do it is a little the way we did it after Watergate, which is to say, The United States is not any purer or better in terms of people and their motives than any other country in the world. We have a set of institutions that have allowed us to find our failings, to publicize our failings, and then to allow a groundswell of desire for reform and holding the government to account. After Watergate, you could say that very clearly. Nixon was a crook, but the system worked. 
that's again where what Biden says now and what the country does now really matters. Because if we do say, look, we're going to hold these people to account, we're going to arrest those who are involved, we're going to actually insist uh, that we do the repair work we need to do, then I think we can go to the rest of the world and say, you know, we're far from perfect. All the more reason for us to be working with you on how you address what are universal questions. Mm. Because, I mean, you refer back to Watergate and that there was that sense then that, you know, American leadership after Watergate and the Vietnam War was in deep trouble. And the 70s, it wasn't a, a great period for American leadership. There was kind of a period of introspection and a sense of weakness in America, albeit, you know, within five, six years, America was back under Reagan. But do you think now, inevitably, there is going to be a period of American introspection while the United States has to look at its own domestic problems? Or can they continue to play a, a leadership role and, and have to really because of the institutional place America has in the world, its network of alliances, and so on. I suppose it's not an either or, but do you think there's going to be less America in the world for the next couple of years? I think America will be in the world differently. I think what is hugely different from the 70s is, of course, that Trump pulled us out affirmatively of everything he could, and he would have he would have pulled us out of NATO if he could. And that has really created a vacuum, not that the rest of the world can't act without us. I think the idea that we're the indispensable nation is simply demonstrably not true. The world has been very capable of moving on on a variety uh, of issues, certainly climate change. And Nicholas Stearns was saying, look, you know, when the United States comes back to the table, it'll find a very different table. I still think, though, we're an extremely important nation. And there are plenty of countries that want us back, assuming we come back not with the, oh, great, now we're back and we can lead and you will follow. That will never work. But a sense of, you know, we want the United States in the game. We want a counterweight to China. We want a counterweight to Russia. We want a partner. That's still a critically important role. And it's what I actually call leading from the center rather than from the top or from the front. And I think there are ways the United States can still be very important. And even with our current issues, there's nothing wrong with Tony Blinken or Jake Sullivan criticizing the Chinese over Hong Kong or raising attention uh, to all sorts of atrocities still being created. Our own troubles don't prevent us from doing that. Let me just say one last thing on that, though. We are going to be domestically absorbed because unless we renew ourselves at home, we don't have the credibility and strength to lead abroad. We must repair everything from our infrastructure to our political system, to our educational system, to this enormous racial and social inequity that we face. Yeah, it's quite a, quite a large menu, isn't it? I mean, given the Dems, they do now control the Senate, but barely. There's the financial and economic and social wreckage left by the pandemic. You know, this it sounds like a generational task, not something you could even do in one presidency. It is a generational task. The deeper issues here, independent of Trump or Biden or anybody else, the deeper issues are that the United States is moving from a majority white nation to a plurality nation and no liberal democracy that started out with a majority of one group has ever made that transition. The United States is undergoing it, and that creates huge turbulence. 
and we're undergoing a massive technological transition still. I mean, the Industrial Revolution took a century in different waves, and those two things are not going to be addressed fully in four years, eight years. No, it, it will be a generation. At the same time, the other thing that happened last week was that Georgia sent two Democratic senators, including an African-American senator, to Washington. That's also part of that demographic change. And if, in fact, the Democrats can organize enough on the ground in enough places, as Stacey Abrams and many others did, particularly with the younger generation, we may really see new coalitions that are able to keep a change-oriented government in power for quite some time. Each question and answer raises a whole new set of issues. But just to end on that last point you were talking about, this transition from a majority white country to a majority minority country, as it's sometimes called, although whites would still be the largest group. I mean, I know you've argued that America's very diversity can and should be a strength, particularly in the way it deals with the rest of the world. I think some people are now looking at it more gloomily in the light of what's happened. And I noticed that even Barack Obama, in his interview with The Atlantic, said it's not clear that a multiracial democracy can be made to work. How do you personally feel? Are you a little bit less optimistic than you were maybe five years ago when you were making this point about America's diversity as a strength? I still think it is a huge strength. And I would point out that you could have said the same thing in the middle of the 19th century when that diversity meant the Irish and the Russians, as well as the Germans and the British and the French and and the Irish Italians and Russians regarded as very, I mean, the Irish were affirmatively regarded as black and the class and ethnic, whether we called them racial divisions were enormous. And yet, By the turn of the 20th century, there was a sense that this dynamism that came from what we then called the melting pot was very important. Won't be a melting pot going forward, and it won't be easy. I call it a plurality nation, not a majority-minority nation, because I don't think it helps anyone to think that they're minorities. I think the point is it should be a deeply pluralistic nation with lots of potential coalitions. I don't think it's by any means a given that we will make that transition successfully. But I think it is certainly a strong possibility, if not a likelihood. In other words, if you ask me to bet, I'm going to bet that we can. And part of that is generational. I mean, I'm watching television now. I just finished watching Bridgerton by Shonda Rhimes that is imagining a world that no one in the United States has ever seen in which It's not that race is invisible, it's not, but that it's just not the lead signifier when you look at someone, whether that is a person you marry, that is a person you work with, that is a person you hire. And I don't think that's a utopia. We'll have other divisions. (laughs) We'll have divisions within different groups. But I do think that that is what distinguishes the United States from many other countries, not all, if you look at Canada or Australia or others. But that in the end, it is a source of dynamism and energy that will ultimately outweigh the conflict that it brings. But again, I'm predicting some very turbulent seas ahead. That was Anne-Marie Slaughter, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for joining us. I hope you'll be able to join me again next week and throughout the year. 
If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you could tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find the Rachman Review in all the usual podcast apps, 